Coming up next on Upstate's Health Link on Air, a nephrologist goes over the diagnosis of kidney stones and your treatment options if you have them. The cornerstone of therapy for anybody with kidney stones is more fluid. A geriatrician explains what may happen to our sleep habits as we age. As we get older, there are certain stages of sleep that change in normal aging. Um, some of our deeper wave sleep, of our non-rep sleep, um, are almost non-existent in many people that are 65 and older. And an internal medicine doctor explains the complicated immune system disorder known as sarcoidosis. Some people they come to know about sarcoidosis when they present with some symptoms like shortness of breath or vision problem or skin rashes or other symptoms of affected organs. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore solutions to the most common sleep problems in the elderly. Then, we'll learn about the complicated immune system disease known as sarcoidosis. But first, kidney stones and what to do about them from a nephrologist. Today, we're going to get an overview of kidney stones from Dr. Stephen Knoll, a professor of medicine at Upstate who specializes in internal medicine and nephrology. He's with me in the HealthLink on Air studio. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Now, what are the first signs of kidney stones? Well, kidney stones uh, can be silent, so you may not have any symptoms at all. But if you're going to have symptoms, generally you're going to probably have pain, usually in the what we call costovertebral angle, so the area of the back just to the left or right of, say, that thoracic spine, and it may move down the back. It may actually turn towards the belly, and it actually can uh, re uh, radiate towards the groin. You may see some blood when you urinate. Uh, you may feel a, a discomfort when urinating. Those are generally the kinds of signs. Um, you may find sometimes that you'll be nauseated, you may vomit. You may have generalized discomfort in your belly area. So, but it could be silent. So, absolutely silent. I didn't realize you could have a kidney stone and not realize it. You could have one and pass one and not. Know I have it? some patients who have literally hundreds of kidney stones uh, within each of their kidneys and rarely have symptoms. Wow. Now, what's let's talk about the epidemiology sure. of a kidney stone. What what is it? Well, uh, if you think of urine as water with stuff in it, and that stuff is generally the stuff that the body is trying to rid itself of, the poisons that we all make, but also just generally the things that we may be eating or drinking or producing that we need to get rid of to just keep things in balance. Waste products. It can be waste products, and it is, but there can be other things too, like mm -hmm. we eat... We eat salt and we eat potassium and calcium and our bodies may get rid of some calcium from their bones and the body has a job to try to maintain balance and the kidneys help to do that. Uh, and so that stuff sometimes in some patients can actually become solid rather than staying in liquid form. And when that happens is when you run the risk of making a kidney stone. So does do kidney stones affect men and women equally? No. Um, if, you, if you look, generally speaking, men outnumber women um, in terms of those that make kidney stones, although over the last 20 years that difference is shrinking. Um, why that's the case, it's not entirely clear. It may be related to the obesity epidemic, and it's not to say that uh, males aren't as obese as female. It's not about that. It's about if you think about risk of having a kidney stone and men had a higher risk, and now you suddenly add another risk factor, that risk factor may not be that substantial if you already have a high risk to begin with. 
Okay. And, and that's one of the theories as to why we're seeing more women now develop uh, uh, kidney stones than they were in the past, but still men outnumber women. And is it an adult issue, or do you ever see children with kidney you stones? You do. You see uh, children. And uh, generally speaking, if you see a, a child with a kidney stone, more often than not, it will portend a diagnosis of something that may be a larger disease, meaning it's not just a kidney stone. Maybe they were born with some type of disorder that's not only affecting the kidneys, but other parts of the body. And it generally demands a very good evaluation by uh, a pediatric nephrologist. But speaking to diabetes and obesity, we're seeing that they are on the rise in the pediatric population. And so stones now are also becoming more common in the pediatric population, independent of those other types of diseases. All right. Well, when should people seek care? If they've got a, a kidney stone or they're having the pain that might lead you to believe it's a kidney stone, um, at what point do they go to the hospital? At what point do they call their, their doctor? You know, it's always, I always find that a t I think it's easy to say, well, clearly, if uh, you're having the, the worst pain you've ever had, you, you shouldn't wait on it. You need to seek medical attention. And it's probably not something you should say, I'm going to call my doc and they'll get me in in the next few days. If this is extreme pain, which kidney stones can be, if, you've if you talk to women who have suffered from stone pain, most, if not all, will say, I would prefer going through labor, assuming they've had a child, then suffer from the pain of a kidney stone. So that's the kind of pain we may be dealing with. You have wow. that kind of pain, you need to seek immediate attention. Uh, if you see blood in your urine, I would hope that that would be an alarm to anybody to say, I need to seek medical attention. Um, you know, burning when you urinate is not necessarily uncommon, especially in women. It may be a sign of just a urinary infection, but I would say, but that's still something that deserves a call to your doc. Now, you're a nephrologist, yes. a kidney specialist, but yeah. urologists yeah. also deal with kidney stones, right? Yes. So how do you pick, as a patient, how do you pick? What's the difference between the two? Well, a urologist is by training a surgeon. Um, a nephrologist by training is an internist. So, okay. um, yep, we both deal with the same type of diseases, but it's it's the manner in which we try to deal with them. And um, I, I generally try to describe to a patient when they're asking, I say, is, well, if you're thinking about a kidney stone, if you were to develop a plumbing problem, you get a blockage, uh, you get that pain where you need immediate attention, you need to see the plumber. And I, I try to describe it. Think of the urologist as a really, really intelligent plumber who's going to help to fix that problem. Now, they may also be also um, somewhat like me, and I try to describe myself as more like the chemist, sort of the, well, why did it happen to begin with? Urologists certainly can do that, but that may not be the focus of their training because they are surgeons. Uh, it's the focus of my particular training is to try to understand the chemistry. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with nephrologist Stephen Knoll about kidney stones. Are there any home remedies that work for people? Well, it depends on who you ask. Uh, I've met a lot of patients who will swear by, quote-unquote, home remedies. Scientifically speaking, we don't have any evidence of any home remedies working outside of, for example, using lemon. Uh, lemon does appear to provide some benefit for most types of stones because lemon contains something called citric acid, which uh, can be converted to what's called citrate. Citrate is an important inhibitor, something that helps to prevent oh. most kidney stones from forming. So certainly one of the cornerstones of therapy is to give citrate as a medication, but you can also get it through dietary. Um, but, but you can't just, you can't just drink tons of water to flush it through. Well, that, see, I don't really, I, I apologize. I didn't, I don't really consider that a home remedy, like a concoction, but absolutely the cornerstone of anything. When you talk about chemistry, right, we're talking about, you know, 
is it, is it existing in a gas, a liquid, or a solid? We want it to exist in a liquid form. Well, if you've got stuff that's sort of making solid, well, then you need more liquid to try to dissolve it back into the solution. So the cornerstone of therapy for anybody with kidney stones is more fluid. It's, well, what kind of fluid? Water's always a great a choice. A good choice. Yeah, okay. Generally, the, the, the liquids you'd perhaps want to consider avoiding, trying to keep it simple, would be things that contain fructose. Fructose can be converted to things that can increase your risk for making a stone, mm -hmm. if you're at risk for making stones. And then dark colas. Dark colas, uh, generally, they have what's called phosphoric acid, which itself can be a risk. But the light, you know, the, the light colas, the 7-ups, the Sprites, uh, water, coffee, tea, really, it's very little evidence that those are problematic. Uh, really, it's only the two that I named. Now, how long does it take for a stone to pass once it's identified and, you know, someone has it? Yeah, passing of stone really isn't, um, that's a hard question to answer because a lot of that depends on where it is and how big it is. So, um, you know, common sense would tell you if it's a smaller stone, then it's probably going to be easier to pass than a larger stone. And if it's um, in a particular location where gravity can help to move it out, then it may be more apt to move out. So uh, size and location are really the important things to understand in terms of deciding what's the likelihood. And that's where a urologist can help you. I read recently about the Broncos head coach was coaching while he was passing a stone. Oh, yeah. You hear, you hear some... Some people will manifest their symptoms in ways where it may not be that every stone is like labor, mm. right? Okay. Because remember, I said stones could also be silent. Some people are like, yeah, I just got a, I got an ache. Some people who have kidney stones and have had them for a long time, they are so used to it as well that it may not be as severe. So that's always why it's so difficult to say, yes, this is clearly a kidney stone. It's only when it's like what I described, blood in the urine, pain when urinating, and that excruciating pain in your flank area that a stone is very likely. So when you uh, meet a new patient with suspected kidney stones, what, what, what do you go about, how do you go about diagnosing and, and treating them? So most of the time it'll be my urology colleagues, um, either here or throughout the region, who will uh, ask that I see a patient of theirs because they've had kidney stones I will, of course, do my own history uh, and learn as much as I can about the patient, but that will also include an extensive dietary history. I want to try to understand what it is they're eating and whether that may be increasing their risk, understand what they're drinking and whether that may be um, relating to their risk. Um, and we also do a um, what's called 24-hour urine collection. So we literally collect urine. We ask the patient to do this. The fir for the first visit, we asked them to do it on successive days, preferably on a working day and a non-working day because our diets are different. Mm -hmm. Sure. Right? Um, and we will then look together at those uh, what we call urine chemistries and then be able to see if we can identify patterns that may identify diseases that we will then investigate for further. But also, okay. I see what your risks are, and while we're investigating these other possible diseases, here's what we can at least do to try to mitigate risk. Okay. What's a metabolic evaluation? That would be a metabolic evaluation. When you do those 24-hour urine collections, and then by looking at the results of those collections, deciding, for example, if I identify a patient who may have a lot of calcium in their urine, which is a very common metabolic abnormality, uh, for those that have kidney stones, then I'm gonna, that's going to trigger me to say, okay, I need to do a bit more now. That may include some additional blood work to identify a possible explanation for why there's more calcium in your urine. Okay. And that's all what we call the metabolic evaluation. So someone who has high calcium in their urine, high levels of calcium yeah. in their urine, would be at an increased risk for kidney stones. Correct. Perhaps. Are there other um, factors that would put a person more prone to develop kidney stones? So if you look at risk factors, uh, risk factors would be um, probably to sort of tie it up. Risk factors for any type of vascular disease 
high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, um, known heart disease. Vascular disease itself seems to be associated with a higher risk. It doesn't mean that that's the cause, oh, but okay. there's clearly a relationship. And we definitely see heavier patients, diabetic patients, patients with high blood pressure. We see those patients at having higher risk, and there are patterns, metabolic patterns, that you can see in the urine in those types of patients. And then what about dehydration? It, that's something that happens more acutely, right? Yeah, so it, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a great question. It's, it really speaks to a person's underlying risk. You and I could both be out in the desert, right, and thirsty, dehydrated, and entirely same access to the water, identical diet. I may make a stone and you may not make a stone. How come? And that speaks to that underlying risk. Um, so being dehydrated doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. Wow. So that's why when we talk about treatment, I'll see patients who we say, you know, you, you need to drink generally enough liquid to make about three liters, so about three quarters of a gallon of urine a day. And they may come to me and they may say, I'm doing that and I'm still making stone. And I'll say, I believe that you're doing that. You're clearly not drinking enough for you. You're definitely drinking enough for someone like me. I'm not making kidney stones. I may not need that much urine, but you need more. And the other thing I tell them is that the kidneys aren't necessarily forgiving. They don't care what you do for six days out of the seven days. If that seventh day you are dehydrated, That's you went to the New York State Fair and you had a high salt right? Uh, the kind of diet that would increase your risk and you were out in the sun, you got dehydrated. That just may be the time where the urine is now at risk for starting to make those crystals. So it sounds like it's very individualized. It is. What it is. Well, thank you. My guest has been Dr. Stephen Knoll, a professor of medicine at Upstate who specializes in internal medicine and nephrology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, common sleep problems in seniors. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Our bodies change as we age, and one thing you may notice as you get older is that your sleep habits become different. Today, I'm talking about this with Dr. Andrea Berg, an assistant professor of geriatrics. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Berg. Thanks so much for having me. What is normal in terms of sleep for someone, if we're talking about seniors, 60s, 70s, 80s, what's normal for sleep? Well, there's definitely some things that change as part of aging, normal changes within our sleep pattern. So... You know, we used to think of sleep as just sort of being a time where we sort of powered down, but sleep has a lot of functions. And in about the 1930s, we developed uh, EEGs, and we were able to plug in and see all these different waves and different patterns that happen when we were asleep. And it's a, a time of great activity of our brain while we're sleeping. So, so sleep has a lot e of functions. EEG, that's mm -hmm. a test of what you're, what's happening in your brain? Right. It's, okay. it's a little, it, it measures the electrical pulses through your brain. And so from that, we learned that sleep has a lot of different functions. There's different stages. There's uh, REM, rapid eye movement sleep, and non-REM sleep. And our bodies sort of cycle through different stages uh, as we sleep um, throughout the course of the night. And sleep has a lot of important, really um, vital functions for our immune system, for our bones, our growth, our development, and our memory and cognition. So it's a really important function for health and um, in order to stay healthy and have optimal performance. So to your question, as we get older, there are certain stages of sleep that change in normal aging. Um, some of our deeper wave sleep, of our non-REM sleep, um, are almost non-existent in many people that are 65 and older. Um, so that has a huge implication as, we, as we're sleeping, we're in a more lighter sleep 
for the most part as we get older. And you can imagine how that might factor in, say, if you have some arthritis or um, if you have some chronic pain that you're easier to rouse if you're not in some of those deeper sleeps just as part of normal aging. So you have trouble maybe staying asleep or or falling asleep even. Certainly. And so um, sleep problems, sleep reported problems, either difficulty falling asleep or uh, staying asleep are very common as we get older. But the reasons for them can be very wide range. And a lot of those aren't part of normal aging. Uh, maybe it has something to do with other medical conditions that you have, um, be it um, sleep apnea. If people are mm. having, a, you know, they have blockages in the back, obstructive sleep apnea, if they have blockages of the airflow, that their, their drive to breathe is there, but the airflow isn't getting through, um, that's something that has a huge impact of a medical condition that is common um, and in common in older adults. Um, there's certainly treatments for it. Uh, but if it left untreated, it can really have impacts on overall health, be it, you know, on your heart health, but also on your mental health as well. Is uh, falling asleep earlier in the evening, is that part of normal aging? Not necessarily, but um, changes in that sleep-wake pattern, that diurnal rhythm, definitely happen as we get older. So some folks succumb to falling asleep earlier and then rising earlier. There's other folks that have a different pattern where they might fall asleep much later and wake up much later as well. So these variations in the norther, normal rhythm of, of that sleep-wake cycle are very common as we get older. Is, uh, are there differences in men and women, or do you see this more in women? Uh, not necessarily. There's not quite a breakdown um, it, uh, for in the sexes, although I think a lot of the things that result in some of the sleep differences are other medical conditions. So if there's a, a male or female predilection for a certain medical condition, that might impact it. Um, for example, say restless legs. Restless legs is something that's very common, um, and it's increasingly common actually as we get older. It's a more common condition in our in our say sixth, seventh decade, um, and it's that sensation of sort of bugs in your veins that uh, in usually your legs, but it could even be your arms um, usually at night and moving around kind of makes you feel better. You can imagine how that impacts somebody's sleep tremendously. Right. So um, I think that it's it's probably more important to look at the medical conditions that could be contributing to sleep problems as opposed to just, um, it's not all part of normal aging. So it sounds like if a person, a senior has issues with sleep, they should bring it to their doctor's attention because it might be tied to something else, yes. some medical condition. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, as far as, you know, physical medical conditions, and then also depression, anxiety, they're really common, um, uh, impacting people's sleep as well. Uh, not only if you're having some depression, like a situational depression, but caregiving. You know, a lot of our caregivers have a lot of sleep problems because of the stress and emotional burden associated with it. So often if we focus on treating depression or anxiety, that often will have a, a good impact on um, positive sleep. Mm. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Geriatrics, Dr. Andrea Berg, and our subject is how aging affects sleep. So as we get older, there we might be on more medications than we used to be, or we may have different diagnoses that we didn't have when we were younger. Are there things, we've mentioned anxiety and depression, are there other things that have an impact on sleep um, heart conditions, things like that? Certainly. Um, so, and, and you mentioned medications too. So a lot of the medications that we're on see to manage some of our conditions like heart disease or other, um, or say if you have some cognitive impairment or dementia, all of these other medical conditions come with pills. <laughs> and uh, there's many ways that pills, the medications themselves, separate from the, the medical conditions they're treating can impact sleep. So for example, for heart disease, if somebody's on a diuretic, um, that's going to make them have to void and that's going to interrupt sleep maintenance. So the timing of which we take the meds, um, it can be sometimes changed around a little bit so that it doesn't impact on sleep. Mm, similarly, say for dementia, a common medication that a lot of people are on to treat some of the symptoms of dementia is something like denepazil. Um, those, that class of medication can cause really vivid dreams and really um, active sleep. So if you take it too close to bedtime often, again, it's a timing issue. It could really impact somebody's sleep. So, um, so sometimes it's not only the medical conditions, but the pills that we're taking and how we're taking them. Now there's medications for sleep, mm -hmm. too. 
But if you're an older person who's on medicines, does it become trickier to prescribe like another pill? Yeah, they're not. We, we don't love um, sleep pills. There, there's not a quick fix for sleep problems. So I guess the first approach would always be to try to figure out what what's causing the sleep problem. What's the nature of the sleep problem? Like most things as we get older, it's not. It's often not one thing. So it's often multifactorial and trying to look at it holistically and then to realize that we're not going to lead with a pill solution. Sometimes it's taking away a med. <laughs> Sometimes it's increasing our activity earlier in the day, getting more sunlight, you know, getting into a more healthy pattern. So I'd say the first line treatment for sleep um, after we try to look at underlying causes, like if there's pain, we should treat it. If there's emotional pain, we should treat it. Um, but is to try to have really good sleep habits. So we call it sleep hygiene, for lack of a better word. But um, making sure that you know that our our days are full, so that nighttime we're tired out, we're we're sleeping, we're not napping excessively throughout the day. So a lot of folks say, hey, I really need a nap. So that's fine. But try to consolidate it to one restorative nap in the middle of the day, as opposed to fragmented multiple naps, so that we don't interrupt our normal sleep cycle, that we're able to go through those normal cycles of the non-REM and the REM sleep and have a full restorative pattern. Um, Also being mindful of what we drink. So alcohol is, is, it'll... um, Sometimes people don't drink it or take it rather for its relaxing effects, but it really changes the quality of our sleep so that it's not the normal sleep architecture that you're having if you're under the influence of alcohol. So even a little bit could make us have even further lighter sleep and people are more likely to wake up frequently either to have to avoid or just because their sleep is really light. So I think a lot of people think of, you know, a glass of wine right. or whatever is going to help them relax and sleep better, but you're saying maybe the opposite. Right. It might make you, it might help you fall asleep, but your sleep maintenance will be negatively impacted. It's not the same quality of restorative sleep. Now, what about, there's a lot of um, sleep aids or supplements on the market, melatonin and um, different herbal types of things. Um are those similarly frowned on in, to be used by seniors? Well, I guess the concern always is we don't want people to be too sedate and, and kind of clouded. So there's always a, a, an exchange, right? So a lot of the medications that people might use for sleep, um, either the, the prescribed or the over-the-counters, we want to make sure they're not too sedating. Um, a lot of, of, say, like Tylenol PM, something that has Benadryl in it. It's really easy to get. It's over-the-counter. Benadryl has a really bad effect on our seniors because it'll cloud our thinking, and it could increase risk of falls. So those are usually the biggest concerns with the -the over-the-counter agents that are sedating of that sort, like antihistamines. Um, They they could increase our risk of falls and confusion. Hmm, Interesting. So what are, are there some uh, changes that you would say that if, if a person's experiencing these or if a person who's listening has a parent who's experiencing these, that they really, it could be a signal and they, they need to bring it forward? Well, sleep is so important, and I guess we can't underestimate that. And um, we still need seven and a half to eight hours of sleep, ideally, and that doesn't change as we get older. Um, so I think to, to remember how important sleep is on healthy cognitive functioning, you know, that we need it to consolidate our memories and on our immune system and our bone health and our muscle health. So to really prioritize it, that it's not a luxury. So if some, if people aren't, ha- if they're not having good quality sleep and they're, they're waking tired or unrested, um, I would bring that up in, in, to, in, your, in your visits with your providers, not with the hope of just getting a sleeping pill, but to look for an underlying root um, and cause. And um, I would say the last... Can we use pills? Sure, sometimes we can, but I would I would want to target it to what are the underlying causes for the sleep as opposed to just trying to, to put people out, to put people under. Is this an issue that a lot of your patients bring forward? It's a common Absolutely, thing. yeah. Sleep is a huge issue, um, and I think it comes into play not for patients, but also for patients' caregivers, too. Um, if people, if, if I have a patient who has, um, has dementia and their caregivers, if they're a fragmented sleep, it's a huge burden on them. So it's not just an issue for one person, but an entire family. Well, I'm imagining caregivers, unless they have some help, uh, you know, they're, if they're it, right. they're on all the time. Oh, absolutely. It's got to be hard. 
but again, I guess the best the best advice in the absence of other medical conditions for sleep would I first take a holistic approach of of the non pill version um, and really again just bolstering our physical activity during the day, um, our mental and our social engagement, and then at night powering down to not have phones or books in bed with us, to not have that bright light exposure. That bed is really, tell patients, there's really just for sleep or sex, and that's it. And that if you're not doing one of those two things and you can't sleep, get up, do something else until you're tired, and then come back down um, and try sleep again. But trying to limit caffeine or, um, or alcohol too close to bed, um, those are some things, some practical measures that we could do for more of a healthy approach towards sleep. In terms of sleep hygiene and the aging body, um, beds do you just go with what feels comfortable or do does the aging body need a softer surface or a more firm surface or is it just preference? Uh, I'd say that's more preference. I guess I'd be more concerned with uh, whatever you need to support your your you know your comfort, especially for getting in and out of bed safely. Um, as we get older, uh, transitioning in and out of bed can be a, a, a time of high risk for falls. So mm-hmm. I'd be more concerned with like the logistics that you're well supported and that you know your your the physical environment around you is set up so that if you do have to get up, it's, you're not putting yourself at risk for a fall. Now, is it normal to have to get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? Yes. Um, for the most part? Yes, and especially for um, gentlemen. I know often prostate issues come up, um, so people might have to get up more often. Um, that That's true. <laughs> so how early would uh, a person in their aging notice changes in their sleep? Are we waiting until 60s, or would you see some changes maybe in your 40s or 50s? I think sleep problems are, pre- are prevalent throughout. Um, throughout our lifetime and that they could be a hallmark or uh, some sort of a warning sign um, of that, that something else needs to be addressed, um, be it in stress management or a medical condition or what or whatnot. But um, I think the important thing to remember is that at whatever age you're experiencing, if you're having troubles with sleep, if you're having problems either falling asleep, staying asleep, or you're not w- uh, rested when you wake in the morning, it's something to talk about with your providers because they're, um, it's not it's not just a problem with sleep, but it could be a problem of other medical issues. And if you're not getting adequate sleep, then your immune system is, is compromised and, and it has uh, widespread effects on your overall health. It seems like that'd be a vicious circle, mm-hmm. really. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for this information. It's my pleasure. My guest has been Dr. Andrea Berg. She's an assistant professor of geriatrics at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about sarcoidosis. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Sarcoidosis is an inflammatory lung disease that can affect not only the lungs, but the skin, eyes, heart, brain, and bones, any organ in the body. In many ways, the disease remains a mystery. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to help explain it is Dr. Barindra Saw. He's a pulmonologist and clinical assistant professor of medicine at Upstate and also the director of the sarcoidosis program. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Salt. Thank you for having me, Amber. So how and when do most people learn that they have sarcoidosis? Some of the people, they come to know about sarcoidosis when they get a chest x-ray for some other reason, like for physical exam or uh, some people will fall and will have a shoulder x-ray done and that can show sometime enlarged lymph nodes and that's how they get suspected to have sarcoidosis. Uh, Some people, they come to know uh, about sarcoidosis when they present with some symptoms like uh, shortness of breath or uh, vision problem or skin rashes or other symptoms of affected uh, organs. So you might have it and not know you have it because you don't have symptoms. Yeah, if so. you do not have symptoms, you can still have sarcoidosis. Uh, 
and um, uh, generally that's you know detected by a test chest x-ray or biopsy so it's a disease of the immune system an overreaction of the immune system what what causes that to happen what causes sarcoid uh, so far, we do not exactly know what causes sarcoidosis, but this is thought to be related to overreaction of immune system in the people uh, who are, you know, at risk of, uh, you know, uh, genetic um, uh, mutation or like um, uh, they have certain genetic makeup, and when they get exposed to certain trigger factors, that results into overreaction of immune systems. So genes play a, a exactly. part. Yeah. yeah, there's some genetic role. Okay. Um, what are, is it just one gene or are there more than one? Oh, there are gene? many, the, there are many uh, genes have been identified, but none, you know, none of them are definite so far. We're still working on them. There's so many researches going on. So if you have the one of these genes or some of these genes, a trigger might be... Um, chemical exposure or what are some of the triggers that so are typical? Trigger factors could be bacterial infection, could be fungal infection, could be exposure to some types of chemicals. Okay, all right. And as I understand it, the disease um, in the body causes granulomas. Yep. What is that? So the granulomas are a small cluster of inflammatory cells which are formed uh, due to overreaction of immune system causing, uh, uh, you know, the formation of the cluster of inflammatory cells. And those granulomas are the, you know, the game player in sarcoidosis. Uh, if uh, the patients uh, have uh, several granulomas built up in an organ, uh, that can cause uh, dysfunction of that organ or can cause destruction of that organ leading to symptoms. So that's why they're dangerous because yeah. they can impair yeah. the whatever organ if you're talking about the the brain or the heart or the eyes or exactly okay so is there any way to predict who might have sarcoid uh, right now there is no definite way to predict but the people with certain risk factors you know can be at high risk of developing sarcoidosis so what are the risk factors the risk factors uh, could be uh, you know, exposure to, as I said, this could be occupational, could be uh, environmental risk factors, and uh, environmental risk factors are uh, people who handle insecticides, uh, some inorganic particles, people living in moldy or mildew environment, uh, those are the environmental, and the occupational could be people working in metalworking factory, nav navy, sweep, uh, and the firefighters. Um, you know, the people, uh, the, pe the firefighters involved in 9-11 attack, uh, uh, some of them developed sarcoidosis. So that's how we know these factors are associated. We don't know this causes sarcoidosis, but the studies have shown that these factors are associated with increased risk of sarcoidosis. There's been some studies looking yep. at how many of those first responders developed. Exactly. This is one of the diseases yep. they developed. Yep. For, wow. So uh, does sarcoid run in families? I, I know we said there's a genetic... Yeah, they, it does run in uh, family. Uh, the first-degree relatives of the patient with sarcoidosis are at high risk of developing sarcoidosis. Also, the studies have shown that the uh, you know twins were at high risk of developing sarcoidosis if one uh, sibling has sarcoidosis, another will be another like, sibling will be at high risk of. So that suggests some familial association. So is there a genetic test for it yet? No, as I said before, there's so many genes right now being, uh, you know, thought to be associated with development of sarcoidosis. There are no, there's, you know, there's no definite gene, so we're not recommending that no test. No way to right test. Um, so it's a, it's a disease in the United States. What about the rest of the world? Oh, it's common worldwide, you know, but, but it's more common in certain race, uh, uh, in United States, it's more common in uh, Af people of African descent and Northern European descent. Northern European and African, yeah. okay. And does it affect uh, men and women equally? Uh, it, uh, omens are slightly at higher risk of developing sarcoidosis than men. All right. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Burindra Saw. He's a pulmonologist and assistant professor of medicine at Upstate and also the director of the sarcoidosis program. And we're talking about sarcoidosis. 
I, I wanted to have you explain what the typical course of the disease is. It, it typically shows up in the lungs first? Yeah, right? the typical, as I said uh, before, the sarcoidosis can affect uh, any organs of the body, but the most common is lungs. Uh, 95% of the patient with sarcoidosis will have lung involvement. And also the course of the illness, you know, uh, half of the patients are asymptomatic and half of the patients are symptomatic. All the patients who get diagnosed with sarcoidosis uh, can go into, you know, three different directions. They can remain asymptomatic if they were asymptomatic or their disease can progress to the symptoms. And the patients uh, who are symptomatic, uh, they can, uh, uh, their symptoms can even progress and uh, become chronic. The patients, uh, you know, uh, so one third of the patient uh, will go into remission after, you know, if they are treated, even if, if they are asymptomatic, they will go into remission without treatment over two to five years. So but the body just heals itself? Heals it, exactly. Wow. And the people uh, who are, one third of the people who are symptomatic, they will go into remission, their symptoms will disappear, and they will never reappear. But even with that, uh, there is small risk of relapse. That means the, the patients who go into remission, 5% of them can have relapse of disease. Maybe after 5 years, 10 years, I have seen patients relapsing after 20 years. And that can relapse in different organs. That means if a patient had pulmonary sarco sarcoidosis in the lung before, after 15 years, the sarcoidosis can come back in heart, brain. It doesn't have to be the same organ. Is there any way to predict how... If, no, if unfortunately, we no... do not have any way to predict, you know, who will relapse uh, and, you know, who will develop chronic form, who will go into remission. There are some studies going on. I'm guessing we also don't know if there's anything that accelerates or decelerates the progression of the no, disease. No, uh, we mm -hmm. don't have a clear-cut idea about that. So well, we said it, it remains a mystery. There's a yeah, lot exactly. still to be decided. Exactly. Well, for someone who's suspected of having... Sarcoid. I've heard it um, described as a diagnosis of exclusion. So, walk me through what that means. How do you how do you diagnose it if you? So, diagnosis of sarcoidosis needs you know um, biopsy of the affected organs, and uh, in that biopsy, we look for the certain type of inflammation. The granulomas. Granulomas, yeah, granulomatous inflammation, and uh, as I said, this is diagnosis of exclusion because that. Granulomatous inflammation can be caused by other infections like fungal infection, like mycobacterial infection. There's some metal called beryllium. If people are get people get exposed to beryllium, that can cause granulomatous infection too. So we tried when in the biopsy, the pathologists try to look for you know evidence of those infections, and they will say, oh, and that's how we exclude those infections. If the patient has a history of exposure to beryllium then we send for a test to rule out that beryllium, you know, granulomatous inflammation due to beryllium, uh, beryllium exposure. So that's how we confirm the diagnosis of sarcoidosis. So you um, send the sample from the biopsy to the lab, and it, yeah. they can actually look at it and see that's exactly. sarcoid-related? Yeah, okay. Right. So once you have the diagnosis, how do you go about treating it? And I guess it's different depending on which organ, right? Exactly. So the treatment of uh, sarcoidosis depends on severity of symptoms and what organs are affected. Um, the, if, if the vital organs are affected, like brain, heart, eyes, if we find you know, those organs are infected, even patients do not have symptoms, those patients need treatment. Because those organs can't uh, afford can be, to like, have the damage. Can have, it can be you know, fatal for the patient if we do not suppress the inflammation. Okay. But the patients who are like, you know, if the lungs are involved, or the skin or bone, uh, those organs are, when those organs are affected, the treatment depends on how severe symptoms are and how uh, is there, um, you know, impairment of function on a test, like a breathing test for the lungs. Uh, we also check calcium, you know, because sarcoidosis can increase uh, 
calcium in the body, so we also check for calcium. Even patients who don't, uh, you know, if the calcium is very high, that can lead to other, you know, other organ damage like kidneys. So we decide to treat them. If patients are not symptomatic, we just watch them, monitor them. But they, those patients need close monitoring with, you know, every three to six months follow up. We screen them every time, you know. Uh, with the breathing test, we ask them questions about other system involvement, and then we decide to uh, treat if they are getting worse or if they become symptomatic. So the goal is to suppress the granuloma formation, if if possible, or to prevent the granulomas from forming. Or the goal of treatment is to suppress the granulomatous inflammation, and uh, by doing that, we uh, control the symptoms and we further prevent further damage to that organs. If, we sub- if there are too many granuloma, there's more destruction of the tissue. So by giving uh, medicine, we try to suppress the granulomatous, you know, granuloma formation. So are there medicines um, to yeah. treat? Yeah, there are treatments. You know, the first-line treatment of sarcoidosis is corticosteroid, uh, like prednisone-like medicine. And, uh, and then there are other uh, immunosuppressive medications uh, we use to treat sarcoidosis. To suppress the immune system because, again, this is a, an immune system disorder where the immune system is overreacting, right? Exactly. So these medica- the mechanism of these medications are to suppress the immune system and inflammation. Doesn't that cause more problems for the patient in terms of if they have a lower immunity, they might catch colds and other diseases? Yeah, they can cause. As you said, you know, our, our immune system uh, fights with the infection. And uh, sarcoidosis is overreactive immune system. So treatment is to suppress the immune system. And other, you know, apart from s- treating sarcoidosis, if your immune system is suppressed, the, the body of that person is not able to f- may not be able to fight enough with infections. So they're at risk of developing in- infections. And the other side effect of the medications too, like you know, prednisone, it increases uh, blood sugar, hypertension, it causes weight gain in the long term. It can, you know, make your bone weak and, you know, all those kind of uh, side effects. So it sounds like this is a chronic disease that needs um, pretty pretty constant medical oversight exactly. for, for some patients at exactly, least. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, so um, these patients need very close follow-up. And because they are at risk of developing side effects, we also need to decide, uh, you know, how much this is the, we always try to keep balance between risk and benefit. Uh, as we said, sarcoidosis can go into remission without treatment or, uh, you know, they may not need higher dose of steroids. So we try to see, okay, are patients developing side effects of, from these medications? Are patients on the higher dose of steroid? Do, do, do that patient need this higher dose? Can we drop the prednisone down? Uh, so they do need close observation and close follow-up. Wow. So what sort of doctor does someone go to if they have sarcoidosis? Do they see a pulmonologist such as yourself? So, um, you know, sarcoidosis affects uh, uh, lungs in 95% of the patients. So we as a pulmonologist know much more about sarcoidosis compared to other specialists. Uh, if the patient gets diagnosed with sarcoidosis, you know, this, I will recommend them to find a physician who is specialized in sarcoidosis in that area. And... Uh, there are some websites, uh, um, you know, sarcoidosis foundations to look at. The reason I'm saying that uh, the patients with multi-system sarcoidosis, that means if they have multiple organs affected, uh, sometimes they get confused uh, because they are seeing a cardiologist who is treating cardiac sarcoidosis. They are seeing a pulmonologist who is treating eye sarcoidosis. They're seeing a pulmonologist. They are seeing nephrologist and all that thing. And every, uh, different physicians are giving different recommendations. And sometimes the patients get confused. So if they go to a, uh, a sarcoid specialist, that person can coordinate the care with all the subspecialties, okay. and that can help to treat that patient's sarcoidosis better. Well, thank you so much for sharing this information. I think it's been very informative for our listeners. Well, thank you, Amber. Thank you for having me. My guest has been Dr. Barindra Saw, an assistant professor of medicine and pulmonologist at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. One of the powers of good writing is how it can conjure up a memory so sharp, so true, as to break open our heart. Laura Bonazzoli does this in her portrait of her great-grandmother. We can see the elder and the child who watches her. Here is Histoire to my great-grandmother Lavinia. From behind Mama's coat, I saw your arms flat, your funny cap with strings knotted at your throat, your head straining above the dense bands of bed that tethered your chest, your heart. Even at six, I knew of your home in Tadisac, of your window above the St. Lawrence River, where barges loaded with linens and lumber would float southwest toward Quebec, or two or three-decker steamboats parade toward Montreal, flags flying above them. I'd heard of the parties and servants and private tutors until the year your father died and your mother lost everything, Mama explained, on a speculator's bad advice. You came to New England and found a job teaching French, but married badly. He drank his pay with seven mouths to feed, so you and your daughter stitched shoes in a factory where the windows were high and dirty and anyway looked on an alley. And when he died, you took a room in Morse's block until one day you forgot which way was home. That's how I understood it went. And since you now only spoke French, I couldn't ask if I was right or why I couldn't see your wrists and hands or why you lay so little at St. Jude's and not with us. Or were you happy there or ever happy once you'd left your home above the river? This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. I'm Amber Smith thanking you for listening.